Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking food tech and ag tech, the allied sectors that are drawing significant investment from both established players as well as the investor community. Household names such as Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods have caught the public's attention during the pandemic, and money is flowing into transformational technologies that could help solve the looming food crisis and the challenges climate change presents to growing crops. However, it can be a challenging sector to invest in, dominated by powerful ag houses and restricted by biological systems, harvests and crop cycles. Our guest is Lindsay McCorkle. Lindsay is the director of Blue Horizon, a food and ag tech investor, and she has a background in M&A, research and advisory work focused on the food and ag tech sector. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. So we're talking food technology, ag technology, and the investment community that sits around that as organizations and entities, startups, etc. Oh, investing an incredible amount of money into this sector. Can you just, I mean, before we sort of dig into the why and some of the challenges, can you just give us a quick sort of overview of what you mean by ag tech, what we mean by food tech, and a little bit of the, the history perhaps to, to this growing and increasingly important sector? Yeah, of course. Um, so really, it's still a relatively new sector, and there was not a ton of investment activity in the private equity sense of it up until quite recently. So really, we're talking the last decade or so. And I think what really got the attention of investors is food and ag is an incredibly important part of the global economy. We all eat a few times a day. So it, it, it's completely impossible to ignore, but it became, is this the best way to do this? And I think looking at some of the macro trends like climate change that is making things like even growing basic crops much more complicated and harder than it ever has been, a lot of investors start to think, hey, is there something that we can do here? And it's been at least fascinating for me to watch investors try to acquaint themselves with what food and ag is and how it's different. Because what we saw was a lot of investors moving over from software or a lot of people that are solely nude food and ag. And it's created a pretty interesting ecosystem and a lot of different perspectives in terms of what is truly needed for food and ag to make it better. What does investment mean? And there are so many different questions around that that create a multitude of really, I think, interesting answers in terms of where it goes next and and even how they're viewing how the last decade has gone in terms of how successful have we been. Mm, and, and that's what we're going to unpick over the next half an hour or so. So before we get... What is what do you mean by I mean food tech versus ag tech? Where's that dividing line between the two, and what are sort of the commonalities between those two, and some of the the, the differentiators? Great question, and I think every single person you ask will answer this in their own unique way. The way I think about it is, ag tech is anything that directly impacts growers or something a grower would touch. Food tech is usually more consumer driven, so I usually split it between upstream and downstream. So anything that's on the shelf or in the production part of food, so processing or flavors or any of the inputs at that stance are, are food tech, but anything that's on farm is very much an ag tech investment or even to a certain extent, 
before even getting to the farm if we're talking seed genetics or something along those lines. Yeah. Oh, you, you alluded to a little bit there in terms of software, but what do we mean by technology? I mean, is this just sort of, uh, we have covered this in, in a previous episode, but is this better tractors basically, or is it go far beyond that? Oh, so far beyond that. Tractors is certainly part of it, but the spectrum is pretty wild in my mind. You have everything that's incremental change. How can we make this basic practice a bit more efficient? Things like, are we using water on farms effectively, or do we need a new irrigation system? And what does that level of investment look like? To is there a totally different way to think about the food system? Can we try using microbes to grow food in a tank somewhere? Not to make that sound as disgusting as I possibly could, <laughs> but people are getting quite imaginative just due to resource limitations and other concerns. So it total, total variety in terms of how deep is the tech on this and how how much of a change does this tech re represent from how the current food system is structured? Yeah. And there's this kind of the narrative I guess we'll get to is that investors are expecting these technology type returns, but that doesn't always play out in what has been historically quite a low return industry. And, and really, I think that's the, what we're getting to in this story, you know, as we go through it. But obviously, what there is, though, and, and it, it matches with that sort of last 10 years that you describe, there is a real sense of urgency around various environmental pressures that are happening to out to food to the ag sector and then to the food piece and overlaid alongside with growing in demand over better nutrition less intensive requirements you know sustainability etc so there's a lot of background pressure to this driving the technology and driving the change what what do you think first and foremost is is, is sort of one of the, the more common drivers is is it really climate change i think that's one of the leading one of the leading criteria, but I think, I mean, everything's really driven by pricing, right? And so looking at the commodity markets, looking at a lot of the changes we've seen there, what I've started saying is, are commodities really commodities anymore? As prices go up, as things become more precious and more scarce, are we still using that same terminology to, to talk about these really crucial inputs for really just about everything? So I, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to say in isolation, it's just climate change. I think that might be the background driver to it, but it's also growing world population. It's also increasing demand for protein just at, at a global level. It's malnutrition. It's all these other things. As the population changes, food needs change, which directly impacts what the growers are doing on farm. So it's very tough to isolate any of this into saying this is really the driving force when it's just fundamental changes at a lot of different parts of the value chain. Okay, so before we go too much further, can you also give us a sense of the uh, the scale of the investment flowing into this sector and just the amount of activity that's going on with startups, etc.? So last quarter, just under 200 startups received about $2.8 billion in funding. For reasons we'll come to, I'm sure, later in the conversation, this is actually a, a pretty big drop-off from last year, but not necessarily very different from the broader economy as a whole. Yeah. Is there any sense you could give us, you know, on balance, is more money flowing into food tech or into ag tech? You know, can you just give us a sense of that setup? You know, it really depends on the definition and, and what sources you're using to grab that data from. I, I was looking at it earlier today and even how people 
define a category like alternative protein, so the non-animal protein sources that, that people are now using, people put it in different buckets. I think overall, it's easy to say it's really gone up, but there are different quarters where investor interest and excitement is captured by different areas. Uh, the way food tech has historically been defined, which includes food delivery and things like that, has created a, a massive funding bubble. So the numbers generally look more heavily weighted towards food tech. That being said, if you take that out, they're not that different. And there are different mammoths within ag tech, like vertical farming, that also take up a bulk of that funding. So it's within that, it, it's quite tough to say who's bigger. That might not be a good answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's perfect. And, and you mentioned the word bubble there. So we'll definitely come back to that. So you've obviously got climate change, you've got population growth, and a, a again, a society-wide focus more on nutrition than there has been historically. And it also seems, you've mentioned decommoditization, it seems that in the agri-world is really leading the charge on this, this idea that actually, well, we're moving from kind of the, the, the organism level as the commodity, wheat or grain or oil, you know, whatever it might be, soy, to the molecular level where actually you're starting to see a lot of focus on obviously genetic engineering and whether you can boost yields within the organism of those specific attributes, for example, proteins that you want as well. So there's a lot of that going on, right? And that, that is leading to a decommoditization of the typical you know, ability to trade some of these things on the CME. Yeah, and I think, look, the, the drivers behind that are, are really fascinating. Think about what's happened. And this, I mean, is maybe a better answer to the first chunk is think about the environment. That's driving up prices. So whether it's soil, whether it's water, whether it's climate, there's political issues. Uh, the trade war has created just complete chaos. And, and the real war, not to, I mean, that's tough to even think about, but the amount of chaos and pricing volatility that that's created, incredible, right? And then there's financial, which is how do you price this? What does insurance look like? Are we getting smarter? Are we getting better at giving farmers some insurance and some backstop so they aren't so harmed in down years? And I, I think what this all creates is what do we even expect from commodities? What do we expect from the outputs? What do we expect from pricing? And it it's very unclear to everybody best guesses at this point are, are just that. They're educated guesses, um, but they're not usually correct because it's been impossible to predict a lot of the events of the last couple of years and how much that's thrown off um, a lot of these commodity prices. Mm. But it, you know, it's only been the last three, four years or three years or so, let's say, that the prices have risen again. Actually, the last decade has been characterized by very low returns in agri-trading and prices in general. But still, even five, six, ten years ago, you know, the ABCDs, a good portion of them, were pushing into ag tech and food tech, right? They were investing, they were acquiring companies in food and flavors, they were acquiring companies around, you know, industrial uses for starches, whatever it might be. I mean, this has been a longer term trend just since commodity prices have risen. Yeah, I think uh, the the perspective is very much that they'll continue to go up over time. And so we may have a, a year next year where prices come back down. But the belief is very much that the way growing conditions are, which are harder and harder and less and less predictable, the long-term increase in commodity prices is something that we're going to have to grapple with over 
the next period of time. And I, I say period of time because I think everybody will have a massively different opinion in terms of what is that crucial time period. And is it, I mean, that that's part of the national discourse right now too in terms of the climate change rate, but is it five years, is it 10 years, is it 50 years? What is that time period where we truly believe that these commodities are going to become really hard to find and really hard to get enough of? And yeah. so I, which drives a lot of this investment and a lot of the flows. Yeah. And, you know, we had uh, Doomberg on recently talking about, you know, the global food crisis and, and what it will start meaning for societies around the world and and the polities that we've created as these commodities in particular become more and more scarce. Okay, so can you give us some sense? We've talked in generalities and obviously there's this sort of bucket of things that any given technology is looking to solve, whether it's boosting yields, nutritional values, hardiness, you know, whatever it might be. You mentioned sort of a category, two categories there. One is sort of these incremental changes, finding efficiencies, boosting yields, etc. And then there's, on the other hand, there's these revolutionary technologies that people are working on. Can you just give us a sense of a couple of examples on the incremental side, taking maybe ag tech first? Where's, where's emphasis and focus going in right now? A lot of recent excitement has been on the genetic side. So are there novel genetic editing or novel breeding technologies that can make our crops just more resistant to pests or disease or drought or whatever. So a lot of attention being paid there, which is interesting, right? Because those are very, very scientifically minded people. And it becomes, how does this translate onto the farm or grower format? And it's usually pretty seamless, right? Because it's a new set of seeds. So if you can get into the distribution platform, and that's a nice incremental change. You're not asking for a massive change in behavior from the growers, but it does represent, hypothetically, a massive value add if you can plant wheat that is resistant to drought. So I think that's a pretty exciting incremental change. I think it, it things like irrigation, where can we be smarter with our water use? Can we be more thoughtful in terms of how much we're using when right now we know that the irrigation systems really haven't seen a ton of innovation? Well, really ever, but ex ex particularly not in recent history. Again, mm. an incremental change that offers a material benefit to farmers, especially in, in uh, water-scarce climates and water-scarce areas, but doesn't ask for them to massively change the way they're thinking about going out and growing their crops. But this to me, you know, I mean, who are you seeing these small startups that are coming up with these technologies? Because this would seem to be typically the purview of the the Monsantos and so forth, you know, who have the ability to tackle these challenges at scale, you know, who get all the data from the farmers and so forth. I mean, who's prevalent in, in this particular slice? Oh, just about everybody. So there are a few different ways that's happening and a few different ways that a lot of the big players are exploring this. And some of that is they set up their own corporate venture capital arm to make these minority equity investments into these companies. Um, sometimes it's a partnership agreement. And then there are also a number of companies that are still working to figure it out and trying to get creative about different ways to work with these companies. But there's a lot of attention being paid to these startups that are offering these massive innovations. And some of it is, you know, I'm sure these companies are all working on it organically as well and trying to figure things out in terms of how do we make this easier. And I do think there's a disconnect, right? Because a lot of these startups are not 
based in the rural areas where these innovations are most needed. So there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of do these startups truly understand what growers are dealing with and the grower mindset and how challenging it could be to implement a lot of these technologies. And so we talked a little bit about the incremental solutions. Those are the easiest, but there can still be a massive gap in terms of communication and understanding of how exactly this all works on farm. And it's been an interesting few years in the sense that it's really nice to have these incredible science projects and these offerings that represent additional efficiency for growers. But unless you can present these ideas to growers in a way that makes it easy to implement, it's going to be really challenging. So so the incremental solutions are, in my mind, at least the easiest bucket in terms of startups, but maybe aren't as massively exciting from the long-term investment lens because you hope that it gets more and more efficient and that these innovations are just the short-term solution rather than the end-all be-all. Yeah. There's a lot of noise out there as well. I mean, we do a fair amount of, of work for both startups as well as established ag houses. You can imagine for a farmer, it's quite difficult to work through way through all the decks and the pitches and actually try and, and take some of these risks, right? And not least because, you know, we're not talking about technologies that you know whether they worked or not. The next day, you've got to wait an entire season, which is an added layer of complexity we'll come back to. You, you mentioned GMO there. I mean, where are we at in terms of Europe's resistance to this, resistance around the world? Is that starting to crumble in the wake of, you know, um, dare I say it, forest fires across Europe, etc.? I think we're starting to see very early innings in terms of what's the appetite for change around this. The European governments have been so staunchly against GM for so long. And what's interesting about some of the new breeding technologies or gene editing technologies like CRISPR is they're technically not GM. So even if even if we're using the most religious definition of GM, there will still be new ways to get different crops out, different inputs out that don't require genetic modification in the way we all think about it with glyphosate and those early days. There will be lots of different ways to think about this. It it becomes, at least to me, at what point do things become so scarce or so hard to grow due to changing growing conditions and climate change that we have to get a bit creative and we have to stretch our bounds and get a little bit more comfortable with modifying some of these inputs. Yeah. And really, that comes down to consumers and are they okay with it? And that seems to be such a moving... Uh, such a moving answer, depending on which survey results you're looking at. But I, I saw just saw a recent report that products that had that were part of the uh, had whatever stamp that said they haven't been genetically modified, sales were up quite a bit. But I wonder how that holds up in a period of inflation, and if we see food prices continue to rise over time, do consumers actually care, and do they actually know what it means? I think probably nine times out of ten, probably not. Okay, so that's going to be an interesting trend, right? Food security versus some of these decisions that have to be made and some of these compromises about technologies such as as gene editing. What about on the food side? Are we seeing that emphasis on ever better nutrition, even, you know, in, uh, adding uh, sort of non-native proteins to these, you know, there's, for example, just through our own work, we know of organizations that are trying to add antibiotics expressed through crops, etc. Where are we at on that? 
I think what's interesting about food tech is it has to be consumer-led, right? So consumers have to be willing to go to the grocery store, order online, look at whatever criteria they're searching for, be it price or taste or nutrition or whatever, and decide they're going to eat it. And it's an interesting point in time because we're actually asking consumers, what do you care about every time they buy something now? And so it's, do you care about nutrition? Everyone's looking quite closely at calorie labels and they're looking at the inputs. Um, do you care about environment? Are you looking for the sustainable packaging? Are you looking for the tag that says it was grown with regenerative agriculture practices? It, it's really all over the place. And we're starting to see increasing appetite, particularly from Gen Z consumers, that they're willing to try novel foods and things that are a little bit different. Unsurprisingly, older consumers, millennials, I, I guess I'm now calling them older, but millennium, mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm one, so I can make that joke, right? Um, millennials and up, it's, it's a bit tougher in terms of what do I really want to be eating? And isn't it something I want? Isn't it, I want it to be something I already know and I'm already comfortable with and asking for a massive behavior change is a bit tougher from those groups. So any of this likely will be led by younger consumers just because they seem to be more open and more aware of things like climate change and using that as a purchasing criteria. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. And then you've got the revolution side, which is kind of, you know, the exciting piece and, you know, this could transform the world, etc. And often you see quite glossy marketing adverts for what it could do and so on and so forth. Can you just, you know, you mentioned vertical farming. So can you, well, let's perhaps use that on the ag tech side. Are the, you know, how, are, we, are any of these revolutions close? And can you just sort of give us some sense of kind of the typical discussion and pitch that you see out there? <laughs> oh, gosh, close is a, a tough word, right? I think is if we're talking about these massively transformational items, something like vertical farming, we still have a ways to go. There aren't any glowing success stories where somebody is able to provide enough food for a massive population group with just their indoor farm. There's still a lot of things to figure out on the cost side and on the technology side, but they continue to receive just massive amounts of funding because, by the way, they're really expensive to build out and to understand the technology. I think on the animal protein side, it's an interesting conversation because there's been a lot of fanfare over alternative protein over the last few years in terms of, depending on the magazine, you know, none of us are apparently ever eating meat again starting three years from now or five years from now. And consumer sentiment was really excited at first, at the, especially early days of the pandemic. But we've seen, at least in the U.S., consumer sentiment is really cooled. And purchasing is down now for about 11 straight months in retail. And we're hearing from retailers, this isn't what consumers want anymore. Mm. So there's going to be some push-pull with any of these revolutionary things in terms of how different does this look. Of course, the, the early products of alternative protein have really been plant-based. They've been pea protein, soy protein, wheat, nothing too exotic. 
as we think about this next wave of products, most of which are precision fermentation-based or biomass fermentation, so, so really things that are tougher for the consumer to really understand, um, but maybe get there more on the nutrition or taste side, we're still years off from that. There's regulatory, there's pricing, there's scale-up. So nothing's happening overnight. It just becomes, these are expensive. All of these technologies are massively expensive. As you mentioned at the top of our conversation, food is not a high margin, super sexy, high growth business. It's a really stable underpinning of the economy that's absolutely crucial, but it's understanding the push-pull of these in ter- on the backdrop of the capital outlay for the investment needed to grow these technologies is breathtaking. Mm. So it's going to be a slow uh, and steady change. How, how much is kind of impossible foods? That story started over a decade ago, incredible valuations. I mean, how much is that driving the investment that's going into this sort of, we call it sort of the, the, the revolutionary technology side? I mean, is, is that kind of the one story that everyone sees and is going after? I think that was certainly a leader. I think it generated a ton of media attention. It got the consumer's attention. It was one of the first products where it made consumers think about what they were eating in terms of, oh, do I need animal protein? And is there a different, wait, is this bad for me? Is this bad for the environment? I think it's been this really great story. And then, at least in my opinion, they've, they've hit a bit of a wall in terms of how do we continue to increase household penetration? And I will spare you the, the long run on reason, but some of it comes down to product type. Some of it comes down to nutrition concern. Some of it is just consumers are confused and people really like animal protein. So Impossible certainly led the way. It was really a lightning bolt for conversation, for con- getting consumers to demo this. And I think now it becomes from here, where do we go? And how do we maintain consumer excitement? But Impossible and Beyond and Oatly were certainly incredibly important in terms of getting investors who would otherwise have no interest in food and ag pretty interested in food and ag. And we've seen that continue as we see, you know, longtime software investors get involved with food. So it, it is exciting and they definitely have been an incredibly important part of the story to this point. And we'll see what it looks like going forward. Yeah. We again, we've done quite a bit of work for this alternative protein space. It seems to me that you can kind of divine from that, from the what we've seen, that there is obviously a consumer demand for not eating stuff that uh, comes from an abattoir and all those terrible images. But it has to be, it has to taste good. And it's got to actually be holistically better for you because, you know, one of the troubles with some of these alternative protein meats is they've got high levels of hydrogenated fat, all this kind of stuff. You know, so it seems like there's demand out there, but the, it hasn't quite been cracked yet. But on balance, people are willing to, to accept alternative sources. Yes and no. We've seen the price of animal protein go up really, really a significant amount. I don't have the percentage top of mind at this moment, but... Since the beginning of the pandemic, chicken prices, pork prices, beef prices have continued to just skyrocket, and consumers continue to buy that. So as we get closer to price parity between alternative proteins and animal proteins, what what people initially thought would happen was everyone would switch to alternative proteins, but we haven't really seen that, right? And some of that is nutrition, some of that is taste, some of that is price, but I, I think it needs to be all. Um, you have to give consumers a reason to go to alternative proteins. And right now, there aren't that many reasons. Mm. 
And I mean in the sense that the products aren't healthier, they don't taste better, they don't cost less. So if you're at the grocery store, are you going to buy chicken, which, again, right now, money's tighter than it ever has been for a lot of U.S. consumers. Would you rather buy chicken, which you know your family will like, you know how to prepare it, you know it's healthy, it tastes good. Are you going to buy that or are you going to take a risk with a novel product that you're just not quite sure how it's going to turn out? Or maybe you tried an earlier generation of a plant-based product, early days of the pandemic when so many people were, and you didn't like it. Or, you know, your your son thought there was a weird taste or smelled funny or something like that. But there's a lot more to it. And I think the products are going to have to get quite a bit better before and in a lot of different ways before they're really ready to say, hey, we're a true alternative to animal protein products. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about during the pandemic when I proudly bought some sausages from uh, one of those brands and uh, <laughs> the look on disgust from the family you know, of the complaints about aftertaste and so forth. And I don't think we've gone back since. So we've definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely done that journey. Okay, so you so let's move a little bit. Let's move on to the investors, because that's sort of a fascinating. I find it very fascinating that you've got what is actually a really challenging sector to invest in because of some inherent qualities we're going to talk about. You've mentioned their software companies, etc. Like, you know, are we seeing the, the typical names put a lot of money into this space? So particularly over the last, call it 18 months, or really about a year, I, the last six months, not so much, but prior to that, there was a lot of activity from names so I never expected to see in food and ag. It's been interesting to watch the learning curve, um, so to speak, as investors try to understand what does the go-to-market look like? What does the regulatory side of this look like? Watching them assess those pieces on top of understanding what's a realistic growth curve and how do we get used to this? It, it's been pretty interesting to work with them on different projects because they also bring something to the table that I don't have, which is how do we think about the scale up in a more software-like mentality or what should our expectations be around growth rather than this is a food company, we expect this strong, stable growth, Lots of different perspectives, but we are starting to see, particularly within the impact funds of a lot of big private equity investors, they're taking a lot of action and making a lot of different investments, or at least circling a lot of different things that historically, you know, even we're talking five or six years ago, so not not true history here, but they wouldn't have done much in food and ag, but really exciting, I think, to see more interest and more funds flow into the sector. Mm. So what are the, the, the things these investors are look, looking for? Can you, are, are food companies, okay, they're not, they're not glamorous multiples, but actually long-term they've been good investments. And also you mentioned they're obviously impact funds. Are these things being bucketed into that ESG category of which there are limited options to invest, right? And these actually p present quite a good opportunity. Yes, I think a lot of it is being led by that ESG bucket. Almost all of the food and ag startups right now usually have a sustainable or an ESG angle to them, and they're a great fit for an ESG fund because there, there are lots of different areas to improve. I, I think in terms of what they're looking for, they're looking for the same things they're looking for in different sectors. They're looking for outsized returns. And I think part of that's been, okay, can we get you used to maybe it's not 10x. We think, you know, I think valuations have run away from us a little bit as we've gotten all caught up in this bubble of thinking that returns should be similar across 
a software business than a food business or an ag business. So I think we're starting to see a little bit of a approach towards a more realistic investment curve, but things have certainly gotten uh, quite expensive over the last 18 months as more and more investors have gotten into this space. Um, mm. it, it hopefully levels out now, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah. So let's just talk learning curve before we get to that, the multiples and the potential bubble. Because you've alluded to a couple there, just even the regulatory environment is just vastly different to some other sectors, particularly, obviously, the software sector. This is a very different playing field for a lot of these investors. What do you see the challenges being? What are the, you know, what are people having to tick off on that learning curve to get to the point where they're, they, they're sort of truly able to invest in this sector? So that really depends on what kind of investment they're looking at. And I think if we're talking ag tech, it becomes, do you understand the supply chain and what life is like for a grower and how that system even works. I mean, introducing an investor to the ABCDs is a very real conversation I've had before in terms of this is really the who's who and this is these are the, the players with scale and this is how hard it is to innovate without them or with them. I think having that conversation, I think on the food side, a lot of investors, uh, I said this earlier, but they forget that consumers have to go out and buy this food. And so it can be a really, really interesting and novel and healthy and sustainable protein. But let's not forget, you have to go out and build the scale and it has to be consumer obsessed, consumer focused. It's the really hard part about building a company. So more the over indexing on the tech and forgetting the first part, whether it's ag tech, whether it's ag or food, I feel like has has been a lot of interesting conversations in terms of like you really have to focus on that first syllable and remember these companies have been doing this for hundreds of years. We need to learn a lot from the players that are scaled and big and successful, see if we can integrate with them, figure out how they're viewing the market, um, and learn as much as possible about creating change with them, without them. Um, but really, less tech, more more food, more ag, and, and diving deeper into that. Yeah, and, and those are very distinct communities, right? Put, putting, I guess, consumers aside and you know the billions of dollars have been spent on segmenting that market, just staying on the ag side. Those ABCDs, as already alluded to, I mean, they are very much commodity mindsets, right? They're very much, mar everything's about margin and efficiency. And we're talking here about products that, to an extent, decommoditize. There's not really a market that's set up to capture that value. And a lot of these leaders are where they are because they're just excellent commodity managers, not technology investors and, and not long-term R&D type organization. So that must be quite a disconnect there between, you know, going with your latest, you know, technology, whether it's incremental or revolutionary, and, and sitting across the table from the, the, the leadership or the, you know, the corporate development teams of, of those types of organizations. I think you'd be shocked. They're very much on top of this. And they're being very thoughtful in terms of innovation. Uh, Nestle today announced a partnership with Perfect Day for a non-animal dairy solution. And I think we're starting to see more and more activity, but particularly names like Cargill, like ADM, Louis-Dreyfus, they have been in really close touch with a lot of these companies. So they're still trying to figure out, again, how do we incorporate them in a meaningful way? What's the best way to work together? But big and longtime players within food and ag are very aware that change is in the air and it becomes how's the best way to support some of this change or to build out some of this change, whether that's we do it on our own or hat in hand with, with some of these interesting companies, is it 
different question that I think everybody is thinking through, but I would say I am constantly shocked by the level of thought and energy that these big names are putting into understanding how quickly the ecosystem is changing. And that includes the commodity side of this. Yeah. You mentioned ADM, but they, you know, they've also made some very large acquisitions of, of food companies, you know, so they've actually got some of that now in-house capability as well, right, compared to, to others. And it's also been, as you say, it actually has been a long-term plan for the likes of Cargill and ADM to develop and invest in this area. Do you, there's also kind of the, that, those, those sound really good to Wall Street when you're not making lots of money in the commodities trading arm because price there's low volatility and prices are low. But in times like these, when you've seen tremendous returns from the, the various ag houses, will there could be a, do you see continued interest in investing and diversifying outside of their core businesses? I think it will continue just because of the macro trends at play, right? I, I don't think they'll reach a point where they say, we've had enough innovation, we've totally future-proofed the business, we're good. I, I think ADM specifically has done an excellent job of putting real money and real ideas at work in terms of how do we build up this next generation of food. And even if things get better in every other part of their business, they seem to understand it, or at least seem to think that this will continue to be the long-term story and that continual investment and that continual conversation around how do we need to be changing and adapting will continue to be a massive part of their story. Yeah, yeah. And actually, to be fair, has been over the last 100 years in, in their particular case, right? Yes, you know, definitely. They, you know, um, it, it is actually in their DNA. And One other thing I just wanted to emphasize before we move on from sort of that learning curve is that we are still talking about biological systems here. And if you come up with a, a better grain, and I'm making this very simplistic, it still takes a number of seasons, a number of harvests to demonstrate your trial crop is doing better than the control, right? These are, you know, these, these are such a different time scale. And so, and, and there's a lot more environmental uncertainty and actually even just the, the trials that the level of complexity is so much greater than doing a, you know, the computer programming, right? I mean, I just want to emphasize that point and get your take on it. Yes, absolutely. I think software, you can press install once your product is done. It goes on an enterprise system and thousands of users overnight. With something on farm, that's a bit different. That's lots of trials. That's a few seasons. That's convincing growers that you're really worth your salt and you actually can increase yield or you are a real substitute for an existing fertilizer or whatever it is that they're they're using. For food, someone, again, has to go out and buy it and people have to consume it. So it's a much harder and much longer and steadier growth curve. And it doesn't happen overnight. To your, it takes seasons. It takes shelf turns in stores. It, it takes a lot more to really build a true business on this side of the aisle. Yeah. Okay, so that I guess that segues us into, you know, multiples and mention of a bubble. Can you just give us some sense of kind of, I guess, the appetite for this for this sector and, and where multiples are reaching and, and why potentially at least some slices of it might be overbought? Really over the last, uh, call it since Russia-Ukraine and just that level of uncertainty globally that's created, we've really seen investors slow down quite a bit and search for more value. And just as we've seen in every sector, uh, so this isn't exclusive to food and ag by any stretch of the imagination, 
people are really saying, can you be profitable? And it's no longer just about the growth story. So we are starting to see a bit more of a realistic and tepid approach to a lot of these investments, whereas the past years, it really has been breathtaking multiples. Um, What's interesting is that even if you look at where Beyond Meat is trading, it continues to trade at a revenue multiple that represents a pretty big premium to a lot of other food and ag players that are better established, um, have more scale, uh, better margins, uh, actually profitable, things like that. So there's still some disconnect and there's still a lot of excitement and optimism around where these products can go. But at least in my mind, I think we've uh, maybe have a mismatch around what these businesses look like in terms of returns down the road, because so much money has gone in so quickly without a complete understanding of all everything we just talked about in terms of how hard it is to build these businesses into profitable and longstanding entities. This is come down and again, you know, there's sort of this, and as you say, there was, you know, that's common to all sectors in the wake of just the, what we've seen in 2022 um, with, with volatility across the sector, lots of uncertainty and so forth. You know, you must see so many different opportunities and there is a lot of demand out there. What, I guess, are sort of your words of advice that you can leave us with on on the best ways to go about assessing in, in broad generalities these types of opportunities? Oh, gosh, I would say uh, I talked about this a little bit before, but I think really trying to understand the ag part of this or the food part of this just as much as you're trying to understand the tech part of this and understanding where on the curve this falls in terms of incremental to about halfway there to completely transformational and then matching expectations in terms of returns, in terms of time to that. Because right now it feels like we're, we're kind of all guessing and throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded. And we just need to put a little bit more time and thought into understanding the ecosystem as it is, plotting out where we want it to be, and then mapping those, those innovations accordingly. Look, what I think is really interesting is that I'm a big believer that big food is going to be an incredibly important part of this story. So working closely with the ADMs of the world, working closely with Cargill, Nestle, Kellogg's, whoever, they're going to be crucial to making sure there actually is change. And so understanding how they operate and working with them to understand how their field trials work or how their product launches work is incredibly important. They're going to be invaluable players. And so it's going to be impossible for anyone to do this on their own. It's really going to be about how do we create a better story with the big food players and these startups um, just to make it a success story overall. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think, you know, a, a sort of small teaser and primer into this, what is already a really significant part of the commodities sector but and, and, and at the forefront in many ways of decommoditizing it, a trend that's going you know right across the sector, you know, and, and as you say, lots of money flowing into it, and really a, a sense of urgency behind it as the world starts to increase, face you know lowering yields and a more unstable environment in which to to grow food, and we all know um, you know what happens when uh, food security starts to break down. So I've really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I promise I had even more fun than you did. So this has been great for me. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Thanks very much, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.